Open with me to Exodus chapter 40. Right to the end of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We're going to start reading in verse 34. It may take us a bit to get there, but that's where we're going to start in Exodus 40, verse 34. So if you are new with us this morning, um, we are just beginning our series entitled The Whole Story. And, And what we're doing with this series, The Whole Story, is working our way book by book through the Old Testament. And most weeks, we're really taking uh, one book per week. Now, there's a, few series, there's a few books like Genesis and Exodus where we're splitting them up. And so we spent the first two weeks in January dealing with the book of Genesis. Last week, we worked our way from Exodus 1 to Exodus 18. And we got to the point in the story, and all of this is online. We, we uh, said last week that if you go to our website, in fact, the very first sort of header that you'll see on our website, redeemerbrenham.org, you can click on that, and there's going to be a list of, of the sermons that we're going to preach, the list of dates that we're going to preach them, uh, access to the online resources, uh, videos, and some other suggested reading for you as well. So if you want to go a little deeper in this series, there is information there for you. You can access it uh, right there on our website. So last week in Exodus 18, we, we got to the point in the story After Moses and the people of Israel had been delivered from this slavery, this brutal 400-year slavery in Egypt, God had just miraculously delivered them. And so now here they are at the the beginning of chapter 19. Here they are um, beginning their long journey to the land that God had promised them, the land that God had promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which we read about in the book of Genesis. And like Genesis, the book of, the book of Exodus really splits nicely into two halves. So uh, if, you, if you think about it this way, you have Exodus 1 through 18 is the people of Israel in Egypt. And that's, that's the whole story, sort of them in Egypt and then God delivering them from that slavery in Egypt. And then from chapter 19 all the way through the end of the book, just about half, all the way through the end of the book, um, it's Israel at Sinai, at this mountain. Moses and the people of Israel, they find themselves at the base of a mountain known as Mount Sinai. I may actually have a picture of the, the real Mount Sinai. I know it's a little hard to see, but... Um, this mountain, they've, they've left Egypt, they have, are wandering through the desert, they've made their way to this mountain. And here on this mountain, there's this beautiful story of, of the people of Israel encountering their God in this really profound way. They, they really come, um, come essentially face to face with God in all of his power, in all of his glory. There's this very dramatic story there in the text where, where they're encountering God um, in smoke and in fire and in lightning and in thunder. And it's here, and many of you know this story, and it's here in this moment as they're encountering God in this really powerful way where God gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Now, I'm kind of rushing through a lot of those uh, for one reason is because uh, we're going to have to cover about 21 chapters today. So, um, so we should have provided lunch for you, but we'll just, we'll fast through it. 
Um, but also because we preached a series on the Ten Commandments, a ten-week series on those commandments uh, a few years ago. So all that's there available for you. But these, these Ten Commandments, as they encounter God on this mountain, God gives them these ten words, these ten commandments, and these are the big ten. This, this collection uh, taken together is really what distinguishes the people of Israel from among their neighbors. God says, this is how my people are to behave. And up to this point in Exodus, the story has really been pretty riveting, right? I mean, it's, it's action-packed. Really, it's been uh, cinematic. I, I, I looked through, I just did a really quick Google search, um, and I saw that there's a, there was at least 15 movies that have been made about Moses and the Exodus story um, since the 20s. And up till today, there was one made in, in 2019. So, I mean, this is, this is cinematic stuff. This makes for good film, right? We have, we have the story of, of the 10 plagues, including the, uh, the plague of the Passover, where God saved his people. We have the, this miraculous deliverance of about 2 million slaves after 400 years of slavery from the most powerful nation in the world. We have the, the parting of the Red Sea, this miraculous act that God does to, to save Israel and to crush the Egyptians. We have, uh, as we see in the text, we have God bringing water from rock and bread and meat from heaven. We have the story of the Ten Commandments. And yet here, as we finish the story of the Ten Commandments, the action slows way down. It slows way down at this point. And, and really, if you're honest, if you're reading this, this is generally where boredom sets in, right? If you're reading the book of Exodus straight through. And other, really, other than the, the dramatic encounter uh, that we read about in Exodus where they are uh, in, in disobedience and idolatry, they build, the people of Israel build a golden calf to worship. Really, other than that one story in the second half of Exodus, not much gets played in the movies, so first, from the end of Exodus 20, right at the tail end of the Ten Commandments, from the end of Exodus 20 to the end of Exodus 23, and you may, you may realize this as you're reading the text, it's actually a book within a book. Exodus 20 through Exodus 23 is a book within a book. Moses actually refers to this specific book as the Book of the Covenant. And the Book of the Covenant is essentially uh, an expansion and an application of those Ten Commandments. So God says, here's the Big Ten. Here are the rules that my people should live by. This is what should distinguish you. And then he goes on to, to expand and apply all of these commands in the Book of the Covenant. And this is what will guide them uh, in their behavior as they journey through the desert towards the promised land. This is where God gives Moses and his people instructions about building altar, laws about slavery, about restitution, social justice, laws about the Sabbath, and so on. All these laws, he says, this is what it looks like to be my people. And then in Exodus chapter 24, this is a beautiful story. I encourage you to go back and read. In Exodus 24, uh, it's almost like a, like a wedding ceremony. Like it's God's people encountering God and they say yes and amen. They essentially uh, say their vows and they say, we will do everything that you say, God. We love you. We worship you. You saved us. We're seeing you in all your glory here on this mountain. We will obey. It's, it's actually repeated there in Exodus chapter 24 uh, over and over again. That it says, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, if you know the story, you know that's 
Not quite how it plays out. It's just a few chapters later where they're building the golden calf because they get impatient waiting for Moses. And then from here, from here to the end, this, is, this may shock you if you're, not, if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus. From, from really here to the end of the book of Exodus, the whole book is just about one thing. It's about one thing. It's about the tabernacle. It's about the tabernacle. And even, even though we've seen all these amazing things up to now, all those stories, all this, these amazing moments of deliverance, the ending of the book of Exodus is really the true climax of the story. And here it is in these last few verses in Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. So I'll have it on the screen. You can follow along in your scriptures. This is how the book of Exodus ends with this beautiful story. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And yet Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord, it filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journey, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, when I read a passage like that, and maybe when you read it or when you hear a passage like that, you're, you're probably thinking, that actually sounds kind of anticlimactic, Right? It's not as cinematic as all those stories that we read about in the first half of Exodus. And yet it is really here that you see the climax of the story. All the plagues, all the commandments, all the miracles, all the deliverance, all the struggle against idolatry. It really all comes down to these last few verses here in the book. But before we can appreciate sort of what's going on here, before we can appreciate how this book ends, before we can appreciate the climax of this story here, we have to see it in, in, in context. We have to see it in the context of what came before it. And you see in chapters 25 through 31, and then reiterated here, it's essentially repeated. What, what is written in chapters 35 through 40 is just a reiteration of what was written in chapters 25 through 31. And we'll talk about that. The Lord is instructing Moses on how to build, build him a house. A place where God can dwell. A place where they can experience God's presence. And you'll see this referred to... Um, uh, very simply, as a tent. And that's, that's exactly what it is. It's this tent. You'll hear it referred to as the tent, or maybe as the tent of meeting, or specifically as the tabernacle. Those are all meaning the same things. The word tabernacle literally means the house of God. So that's, that's what a third of the book is devoted to. 30% of the book of Exodus. 30% of the book of Exodus is specifically about the tabernacle. It's instructions for building the tabernacle. It's descriptions of the tabernacle itself, descriptions of the contents of the tabernacle, the furniture, the construction, the, the people who are supposed to be in charge of it. All of that, a third of the book of Exodus, that's the most talked about topic in the whole book by far. God's house. This is an important theme in the book of Exodus. This is... This is the ultimate theme of the book of Exodus. And you could phrase it in a question like this. How can God dwell with his people? 
Or you could, you could put it another way. How can God's people dwell with God? How can it, because there's a problem here, right? How can God reconcile his holiness, his, his otherness, and his people's wickedness? Those two things you can't bring together. How can a holy and righteous God be in relationship with a broken and sinful and repeatedly disobedient people? In other words, how can God be in relationship with us? How can we get a sense of God's presence? How can we have a relationship with him? And the answer is, and this is what we see, this is why a third of the book is devoted to it. The answer is through the sacrifices made at the tabernacle. That's how they encounter God. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about this tabernacle. And I actually may have a picture of the tabernacle here. Um, I think this is actually a recreation in Israel. This is the, it doesn't look like much, does it? It looks like a tent. You know why? It's a tent. It's a, that's what it is. It's a, t- it's a tent in the middle of the desert. And yet, th- th- this isn't, as I see a picture like this, and as you even read about it in the text, this doesn't seem like the dwelling place. This doesn't seem the house of the almighty God. It is very simply a tent. It's about 45 feet long, about 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And when we're talking specifically about the tabernacle, we're talking about that inner tent there sort of towards the back. Relatively small. And inside this tent, there's actually another room, a smaller room, about 15 feet by 15 feet And this inner room is called uh, the most holy place. That's how it's referred to in Exodus 26. Or the holy of holies. Maybe you've heard of that. And surrounding the tent, as you can see, is this walled off courtyard. It's about 150 feet long, about 75 feet wide. It's about about 11,000 square feet. So in some ways, you can look at the size of this gym. This inner tent is about, or, or this courtyard is about as big as this gym. That's relatively small, right? And inside this courtyard, when you enter in, you see the, the altar there at the front for sacrifices. You see the wash basin, basin there for the ceremonial purification. There's a process here as you enter into the, as you enter into the courtyard, as you make your way first to the sacrifice, as you go for purification, on your way to encountering God. This was God's house. And this is, this is God's tent. This is important. This is God's tent among the tents of his people. You don't see this here, of course, but when the people of Israel built this tabernacle, built this courtyard, the surrounding all of this is the two million people of Israel. All these freed slaves. They are people in tents. And God says, I, you are a people in tents. I am a God for my people. I will dwell in a tent too. And though it may not look like much, God was very particular about every inch of this place. Every inch of its structure, very specific about its contents. Again, a third of the book is devoted just on which colors the curtain should be. How much gold is used for this? What kind of fabric is used for that? What kind of wood this should be made out of? A third of the book. God is so particular about how he's worshipped. He's so particular about how, how people encounter him and what it means to encounter him and what he's trying to conjure up for them as they encounter him. 
And again, not only did he instruct Moses about uh, the tabernacle itself, but all of these very specific pieces of furniture, extremely detailed instructions on how to build um, all kinds of furniture pieces and fixtures. The people were, ter- were told to build a, a, a lampstand, a golden lampstand, this, this menorah, seven-headed lamp that was reminiscent of the tree of life. Some of you have seen a menorah candle, right? The idea for this candle is that it it would make us think back to this tree in Genesis, the tree of life. I mean, in in the Garden of Eden, the symbol of hope. There was a golden table upon which would sit the the bread of presence. This would be a symbol of, of a meal that you would share with the Lord, a symbol of intimacy with him, of relationship with him. And then, of course, God gave instructions on building the Ark of the Covenant. This was placed in the Holy of Holies. This is a symbol of God's holiness, a, God, a symbol of God's otherness. It's the only piece of furniture in this most holy place, in the Holy of Holies, not only in the courtyard, but in the center of the tent, the center of the tabernacle, this holy, holy place. I have a picture here of the Ark of the Covenant. This is always how I think about it from Indiana Jones. Anybody else? I can't, I can't. I can't see it of any other way than the way I see it, the way I grew up. The Ark of the Covenant is a, it's a wooden box. It's a wooden box, but it's about a yard long, and it's covered in pure gold, the purest gold. And it contains, among other things, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. This is, a, this is a part of Israel's culture. This is a part of Israel's history. This is where God literally touched the stone and gave his law. This is very important, very powerful stuff. This was, this was contained in the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant could not be touched itself. That's why you see there's, there's poles here. And these poles, too, are made of pure gold. They're to hold on to so you can transport the ark from one place to the other. That's right. That's right. Can't touch this. The lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. All right? So the top of the ark, the lid of the ark, is called the mercy seat. And it, too, is constructed of pure gold. Uh, And on each side, as you can see up there, there's angels with outstretched wings that go backward and upward and and almost meeting in the middle. And that is the center of the mercy mercy seat. And between these angels' wings, it was imagined that that is where the presence of God dwelt. In the center of the center of the center of this holy place. In this tent itself that the Holy of Holies was in, that the Ark of the Covenant was in, the tent itself was covered in linen of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And there were, there were angels skillfully stri- uh, uh, stitched into the fabric. Okay, so you're, you're in this tent. You can look above you and you see blues and purples and all all kinds of beautiful dark colors, scarlet. And in that ceiling is stitched all these angels, right? So you're, as you enter into this tabernacle, as you enter this tent, it's like you're being brought into heaven. You see that? You're being brought into heaven. You're, You're being reminded of God's holy place. You're being brought into God's presence. This is essentially a tabernacle, a heaven on earth. God coming down to his people, the house of God. And eventually God's people do. They they make this tabernacle. They make the Holy of Holies. They make the art and they make the lampstand and the table for the bread of presence. But once they were finished with it all, 
They couldn't just saunter up to encounter God, right? They couldn't just meet God on their own because God is holy and the people were not. That's the problem of the book of Exodus. We get to know the people of Israel really well and really quickly we realize how much they complain, how much they argue, how disobedient they are, that they're an idolatrous people, they're an impatient people. They're very quick to worship anything else. Even early on uh, in chapter, I think it's 19, um, around 18, 19, as the, after they're delivered um, from slavery, they're, they're wandering around and they're, they're, they're getting hungry and they said, let's just go back to Egypt. But at least we had food in Egypt. It's as though they, they forgot these 400 years of brutal slavery that they were in. And God continued to provide for them, to be generous to them, to be gracious to them, to lead them. And now here they are in the desert. And God says, this is what I want you to build for me. This is how I want you to encounter me. This is how he's going to reconcile the problem of God making a way for his people to have relationship. You see, the tabernacle, as we said, this, this whole court was set in the center of Israel's camp. And so again, that picture of the tabernacle doesn't show, but, but when it was actually there, there would be tents and tents and tents all around this tabernacle where the people would live. So the people lived in tents, now their God would live in a tent, and in this way God is identifying with his people and yet still remaining unique and set apart from him. This is actually pretty typical in the ancient world. Uh, if you had a nomadic people or if you had a, a, an army going to war with another nation, this is how they would set up their camp, that the, that the king or the warlord or the ruler of the people, he would put his tent in the center of all the tents. And there would sort of be rings of uh, power surrounding that tent, so the further away you were, from the center, the further you are away from the presence of the leader. One writer says this, that God was one of them, but he was superior to them. His tent was the tent of the war leader, the tent of the king located in the center of the camp. No one could approach this tent unprepared or they would meet a horrific fate. And yet approaching it with respect, approaching it with an acknowledgement of sin, of subservice, that led to blessing. That led to relationship. It's interesting to note, too, as you're reading through all of those detailed instructions that um, there, as you're moving through increasing levels of holiness, as you're making your way uh, to the center of the courtyard, to the center of the tabernacle, to the holy of holies, to this Ark of the Covenant, even the value and the preciousness and the worth of the materials used gets more and more and more valuable. Costs more and more money, is more and more precious. The closer you get to the Holy of Holies, there's this sense that God is saying, this is the rarest thing. This is the most precious thing. This is the thing that's most costly. It goes from outside in to 
from bronze to silver to gold and to the purest of gold by the time you get to the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting that God is so specific about the requirements for this tabernacle and about all the furniture. He even says it's going to be this many shekels, it's going to be this much gold, it's going to be this much yarn, that, that historians of the ancient world have now gone back and literally calculated all the things that God is requiring this, uh, his people to use to build this tabernacle in the middle of the desert. And they said it's easily tens of millions of dollars, maybe even up to a hundred million dollars to construct this house of God. Trimper Longwin in his book, his study on the book of Exodus, he says the very structure and symbolic significance of the tabernacle proclaim the presence of a holy God in the midst of a sinful people. Because you see around there, there at the center is God's presence. And you see from moving outside in the Gentiles and the unclean Israelites, they had to live outside the camp altogether. But then the clean and the faithful Israelites, they lived inside the camp. Only the Levites, this, this people of priests, they could encamp in the immediate vicinity around the tabernacle. And only the high priest and only once a year could pass through the curtain of the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. You can't just saunter up to God. You need a mediator. In ancient Judaism, I think I've shared this before. Uh, in ancient Judaism, when the high priest would go uh, pass through the curtain of the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies on that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, that the people of God would tie a rope around his ankle so that when he walked in to encounter the presence of the Almighty God, assuming that he may be simply just struck dead, they could pull him out. That's, they, they knew they weren't messing around. They knew it was a powerful thing to approach God, sometimes a deadly thing to approach God. This, this tabernacle in general and the Holy of Holies in particular, it, it, they point to God's otherness, to God's uniqueness, to God's holiness. And as you enter this courtyard, the first thing you encounter, and we can pull that picture up of the tabernacle again. As you enter this courtyard, you see the very first thing that you see there is an altar. As you, as you enter this courtyard, as you're making your way to get closer to the presence of God, the first thing that you encounter is an altar. This is, where, this is where the sacrifices were made before you could enter his presence. You see, this is important because before intimacy with the Father, there has to be sacrifice. Before, before gaining access to his presence, a penalty has to be paid. Before access to God, there must be atonement. And again, this is the tension of the book. How do we, as sinful people, enter God's house? How do we experience God's holy presence? How do we, how do we know God, as it were? 
And even though we're not worthy, even though the people of God in the Old Testament and the book of Exodus, they were not worthy to be brought into the presence of God, by God giving them these extremely detailed instructions, he's like, I want you to build this. I want you to put this here. I want you to put an altar. I want you to wash yourself. I want you to purify yourself. This animal must be killed. He is making a way for his people to get in relationship with him and to experience his presence. He's making a way for them to know him and to enjoy him without punishment, which they couldn't do before. This has been the heart of God's plan all along, right? We, we, we read this in the book of Genesis that it, it, is, it was the plan of God in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of time and it is the plan in Revelation at the very end of time. In Genesis, God created um, Adam and Eve. He created man and woman and they walked in the garden with God. This direct, immediate presence. This was God's plan. He says, I am making people to know me, to be in relationship with me. To experience this intimacy with me. Perfect intimacy, unconditional love, unconditional support, immediate presence. And yet because of sin, we read this story a few weeks ago. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And yet even though there were consequences to their sin, even still God continued to pursue them. And he's working his way to an able right relationship with him. And we see it here with the tabernacle. We see it here as he institutes the sacrifices. God is coming down to meet his people. He is providing a way for fellowship. Because there's this sense here that we all know. If we're honest about ourselves, if we really know ourselves, we understand that we don't deserve God. Very many people, I think the vast majority of people, even if they're not using this kind of language, there is an ache in them that they want to connect with something greater, something that gives them real meaning and purpose and a a vision and a presence bigger than their own. In other words, there is an ache in us for God. But we know ourselves. We know our hearts. We know our secret thoughts. In the end, we know we don't deserve it, right? That's the problem. That is the existential crisis of life, that we are longing for something we essentially don't know how to get or don't think we deserve. And this is what God is doing here in Scripture. This is what God is doing here in Exodus. He is is solving the problem of our existential crisis of how can we connect with our Creator? How can we connect with anything that gives us greater meaning and purpose? How How can we come to terms with the sinfulness and the brokenness and the frailty of our own hearts? God comes down to us and He makes a way for them. As we said before, in Exodus chapter 24, there's this. God's given his instruction, and in in Exodus 24, the people ratify their covenant together with God. There's this party. They celebrate. They say, whatever God wants to do, that we're going to do. It's a beautiful ceremony. And then in chapters 32 and 34, we see Israel's rebellion and idolatry as they worship the golden calf. Now, it's interesting because in chapters... This is right after the golden calf in chapters 35 and 40. 
we get an almost verbatim retelling of chapters 25 through 31. So do you see the sequence here? So in chapters 25 through 31, we get all of God's instructions about how he can, how they can meet with him. And what does Israel do next? They build a golden calf and worship a false god. The very first thing that God says, don't do that. Immediately following that encounter with the golden calf, God reiterates from, from Exodus 35 through the very end of the book, the exact same thing he's already said in reverse. Okay? It's, it's something along the lines of, you're at a wedding ceremony. That's where they're at in Exodus 24. You're at a wedding ceremony, and I've performed many weddings. I've performed weddings for people in this room. And you say, you, you look into the eyes of your, of your fiance, of the person who's about to be your spouse, and you say your vows, and there's so much love, and there's so much commitment, and there's so much excitement. You make promises to her. You make promises to him. And then immediately when you say, I do, they cheat on you. They run right into the arms of another man or woman. And the way you respond to that is by just looking them in the eyes and repeating your vows. And God does this in a, in a way, I, I think it's interesting that God does this in reverse because it's almost like he's, he's like, we're going to just rewind this history. This is a redo. We're going to rewind the tape on this. It's like it didn't happen. I'm going to bring you back to that point where you're looking me in the eyes, where we're saying our vows together, where we are back in relationship, even in spite of your disobedience. In other words, it's as though God is re, re, rewinding history and saying, I'm going to get past this golden calf altogether. I'm going to bring you back into my presence. God is, God is the God of, it seems in the book of Exodus, second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, over and over again. His posture, his response to sin, he says there will be consequences to their sin and there are consequences to Israel's sin, but God is, no matter what, even in the midst of the most, the cruel abandonment and idolatry, he goes right back to them and he says, don't forget you are mine and I am yours and I saved you and I loved you. Don't forget who I am. Through the sacrifice in the tabernacle, God's people could finally again have fellowship with him. Through, the, through this one animal's death on the altar, there was, there was now atonement for all of God's people. And we know too, we, that's what we're desperate for. That is what we are longing for, even if we don't quite have words for it. And yet we too... Because of our holiness, because of God's holiness, because of our wickedness, he has to make his way to us. And he does it. He does it through the person of Jesus. That's what it says in the book of John. That's what we read at the beginning of the service. I'll reread it for us here again in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. This is how the gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what does it say there in verse 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When it says there uh, in the Greek, it says, 
when he dwelt among us, it's literally translated, he tabernacled among us. That's the language used. So, so John is introducing his readers to Jesus. And he says, this is this God, this word who was there at creation. He was, he was God. He was with God. He's giving this, this very poetic explanation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit together. And he says, in this word, the word that God spoke and created, it became flesh in Jesus, his son. And, and just like he did in Exodus, God has now come down to us and he is tabernacled among us. He has made a way for us to have relationship with him. Eventually, as many of you know, the tabernacle in the Old Testament is replaced by the temple. That now becomes for the Jews the central place of encountering God. And in in Jerusalem, that was the place where, where God met with his people. And when Jesus is crucified, this is really interesting, when Jesus was crucified, remember, only once a year could the high priest part the curtain of the tabernacle and enter into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, right? Well, when Jesus is crucified, there is the same curtain in the temple before they could make their way into that most holy place. And at the moment of his death, scripture says that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, it just ripped in two. No more barrier, no more hurdle. God's presence was no longer associated with a specific place. It was now associated with a specific person, with Jesus. And all of us have access to God through him. Again, one writer says, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He is the very presence of God. His his death and his resurrection meant that the distinction between holy and commonplace was eradicated. Now every place was holy. That is, every place is a place where people can have intimate fellowship with God through Jesus. Exodus Exodus is a book about God making his way to his people. He finds them as slaves in Egypt. He hears their cry. He knows their pain. He identifies with it. And he goes right after them and he saves them. And then not only that, but he makes a way for them to have a relationship with him. One little note, and you could preach a whole sermon on this. You could preach a series of sermons on this, but it's important to know. Think about the sequence of the book of Exodus. He doesn't give them the law and then require obedience and then save them, right? What's the first thing he does? He saves them. He just saves them. Not because they deserve it, not because they're good. He saves them first and then after the deliverance. Not as a requirement for the deliverance, not as a prerequisite for the deliverance. After he's already saved them, after him demonstrating his grace and his goodness, then he says, now this is how you should live. This is what it means to be in relationship with me. So we don't have to figure all this out, right? We don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to get ourselves ready for God. We can't get ourselves ready for God. He had to make his way to us, just like he did In the book of Exodus, the book is about God making a way for his people to have relationship. That's why that end paragraph is the climax, because the book of Exodus begins in violent slavery. And it ends in this picture of intimate worship with God and his people. 
Let me close with this. J.A. Mortier says this, there is a dark shadow of enslavement that lay upon the people of God at the beginning of the book of Exodus. There's the bitter cry of bereavement as their sons are snatched from them and thrown into the river. There's the blows of the taskmasters. There's, there's a future without hope. There is a relentless and uncaring policy of genocide that Pharaoh made against the people of God. There is this cloud, this dark shadow of enslavement. They were at that time a people under a cloud. And now at the end of this book, they are again under a cloud. And yet this time it's the cloud of the Lord. It's the signal of his presence. It's the signal of his glory, of his holiness, of his grace. And between these two clouds, the sovereign Lord of the whole earth destroyed all the power of the enemy. He granted the people deliverance. He brought them to himself by the blood of the lamb. He graced them with his law and the fullness of his presence to take up residence in their midst. He is the indwelling God, the one who tabernacled among them. This is the whole story of the book of Exodus.